Adam Rosenblatt is a scientist. The reason that we as a species can live on this planet is because there are other species we depend on, and we just take it for granted. And what climate change is showing us is that these systems can break down, and then it can come back and bite us in the butt. But he's on a mission to get Jacksonville's leaders to help slow those breakdowns. Welcome to the ADAPT podcast. I'm Brandon Rivers, a reporter at WJCT News in Jacksonville, Florida. ADAPT is our online magazine about what people in Northeast Florida are doing to adapt to sea level rise and climate change. In this podcast, we'll hear from some of them about what they've learned and what motivates them as our region grapples with big issues. But before we dig into those big issues, what is climate change? If someone asked you what's causing it and why does it matter, would you be able to give a good answer? All right, a couple of announcements before we get started. Uh, exam three, obviously, December 9th. Just want to make sure we all... Adam Rosenblatt is a biology professor at the University of North Florida, and he has to answer those questions every semester. Give me the, the grade school explanation of climate change and the role humans are playing in it. The grade school explanation is that there is a blanket of molecules over the Earth uh, that makes up the atmosphere, and that blanket helps keep the Earth warmer than it should be otherwise, um, given our distance from the sun. So the fact that the Earth is livable for us and for other life forms is because we have this blanket over the Earth. And our activities of um, burning fossil fuels and, um, you know, cutting down forests is releasing more gases into the atmosphere that are good at trapping heat. And so we are basically increasing the thickness of the blanket over the earth. And that is what is leading to um, climate change. And how certain are we that it's actually happening? We are 100% certain that it is happening. There is, I mean, every piece of evidence that scientists have looked at is points in the exact same direction, that climate change is happening at a rapid pace and that we are the cause of it. In fact, what some climate scientists like to say is that humans are um, responsible for 110% of the warming because if humans were not emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, then the Earth would actually be in a cooling phase, a natural cooling phase, according to how the ice ages work. And so the fact that we are not cooling and in fact are warming means that we're responsible for even more than 100% of the warming, if that makes sense. How can we stop climate change? It's actually a very simple solution, but hard to obviously put into practice. And we need to move away from a carbon-based economy. And so if we can move away from burning a lot of fossil fuels that emit carbon dioxide, then we can stop the, or slow at least, the progress of climate change. What are some common or even dangerous myths and misconceptions about climate change? <laughs> Where do you want to start? <laughs> so one is that we don't need to be worried about climate change right now because the climate has always changed in Earth's history. And on its surface, that is true. The climate is not stable ever. There are certain periods of the Earth's history where climate has been more stable than at other times. But it all comes down to the speed. Right now, the amount of CO2 that's entering the atmosphere is 100 times faster than it's been in the recent past. Um, and what do you mean by recent past? By recent past, I mean, so at the end of the last glacial period, about 12,000 years ago, when the Earth was covered by a lot of ice, there was an event that triggered moving from a glacial period into the more warm period we're in right now. And that event involves a lot of release of carbon dioxide. 
So, for example, it took about 3,500 years for the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere to, to increase by 70 parts per million, okay? In my lifetime, 35 years, it has increased by 70 parts per million right now. So you're taking a process that used to take 3,500 years, and now it takes 35 years. So that's the speed that we're talking about. It's 100 times faster. And that speed is giving Adam a sense of urgency. So he's lobbying for change at the national level. Adam helped co-found a chapter of the Citizens Climate Lobby here in Jacksonville. The nonprofit helped develop a bill called the Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, which would put a price on carbon that would be paid by the oil and gas industry. The government would collect that money and then redistribute it equally to all American citizens as a rebate. Because obviously if you put a price on carbon, it's going to increase the cost of gasoline at the pump, and people clearly care about that because it impacts their wallets. But by giving the money back to people, it's going to offset the cost of that rise in gasoline prices, and that makes it basically a revenue-neutral bill. It's not going to cost anybody anything other than the oil and gas industry is going to have to pay a price. Adam and his partners are trying to get people in Jacksonville to support the bill. We try to meet with the senators for Florida. We try to meet with their staff. We try to meet with the representatives that represent us here in the Jacksonville region in St. John's County. And we try to say, look, you should be supporting this bill, this Energy Innovation and Carbon Dividend Act, because here are all the benefits it will have, and it would have a lot of clear benefits for Jacksonville in particular, right, for your constituents. We also try to get local leaders on board because a lot of times politicians are not going to support anything unless their voters and people who have influence in a community also support the bill. We've had some success. We've been talking with a couple of very large businesses here in Jacksonville about whether they would come out and support the bill or not. We're starting a campaign to talk with religious leaders, different churches around Jacksonville. Obviously, there's a large church-going community here in Jacksonville, and so that's a good way to sort of reach people where they live and talk to them in language that's maybe a little bit more relatable. So I looked at a couple of your articles, and, and you warned me that they would be difficult to, for me to compromise. <laughs> yeah, compromise. I, I, I am very impressed that you waded into the literature. Uh, I did. I, I, I don't know how much of it I understood. That's okay. Uh, That's why I'm here. You assert that changing environmental conditions, including climate change, are causing species to rapidly adapt. Mm -hmm. uh, so what species are you seeing this in, and how are they adapting? So all species are going to have to change their behaviors or adapt in some way to climate change. Now, there's a couple different ways they can do that. So some species could evolve to deal with higher temperatures or to deal with some kind of different climate that they've never encountered before. The problem is that the climate is changing so quickly that most species likely don't have the ability to evolve fast enough to keep up with it. Because evolution usually takes a decent amount of time. It's not something that usually happens very quickly. But that is one way that some species could deal with it is by evolving, you know, more tolerance for extreme temperatures and other things like that. The other thing that species could do is they could move. If you're an animal and you prefer a certain kind of climate and wherever you normally live has gotten much hotter, you could just pick up and move somewhere else that's cooler. And we're seeing that all over the globe. We're seeing animals that live on the sides of mountains, they'll move further up the mountain to try to stay in a cooler climate. We see species in the ocean, species on land moving towards the poles, trying to stay away from the equator because the equator is just getting too hot. My postdoctoral work at uh, Yale University was building on this exact topic. So there was a PhD student in the lab that I worked in there 
who had done these studies with grasshoppers and spiders, exposing them to hot temperatures and seeing how does it change the ability of the spiders to hunt the grasshoppers? How does it change the ability of the grasshoppers to evade the spiders? In general, the spiders were more susceptible to warming temperatures. They didn't like it to be warm, whereas the grasshoppers did a little bit better. So then I wanted to build on that because we know that temperature isn't the only thing that's going to impact this. We know that droughts are becoming more frequent, and that can also have an effect on these feeding interactions. So when I exposed the grasshopper and spider system to temperature increases and drought at the same time, I did not find the same effects that this other scientist had found. And so kind of the thrust of my research for the last decade or so has been that as a scientific community, we need to be embracing the complexity of climate change rather than focusing on very simple scenarios of what we think might happen. Hey, I'm Lindsay Kilbright, a producer here at WJCT, and I recently bought my first home. Buying a house is intimidating. You're learning about this whole new process, and I was worried about making the right decision, you know, doing my due diligence. Something that helped was checking my property's flood risk with the Flood IQ tool on adaptflorida.org. It showed me my house has a minimal risk of flooding. Now I tell everyone about it, even my coworkers, like Bonnie, WJCT's creative director. Go ahead and type your address in right there. Okay. Got it. It's there. Well, that's a good sign. <laughs> minimal risk. Minimal risk. If you just download that report right there, it's going to okay. show you your projections 15 years out. So go ahead and do that. Okay. Wow. It's all minimal. <laughs> Yay. Check your own flood risk and read stories about adaptation to sea level rise at adaptflorida.org. The Adapt Podcast is a production of WJCT Public Media. Financial support for Adapt comes from our readers and listeners, with additional support from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations and the 2040 Foundation. More at adaptflorida.org. Now let's get back to Adam Rosenblatt. Tell me about your current research. I'm still obviously very interested in climate change. But what we're doing at UNF is we're trying to figure out how do reptiles, specifically alligators and sea turtles, how do their eggs respond to climate change? And it's a really interesting question because in these couple of reptile species and some others, the sex of the offspring is determined by temperature. So whatever temperature the eggs are raised in, that's going to determine whether they're male or female. And the concern, obviously, is that as temperatures warm, that could bias populations towards one sex or the other, and that could throw off the reproductive rates of these populations. It's especially been seen in sea turtles so far in places like Australia. They've done big studies, and they found that certain populations that used to be, you know, maybe 70% female and 30% male, now they're starting to move towards almost 100% female. And that's obviously a big problem. If you have no males around, then they can't reproduce anymore. And then there goes your sea turtle population. So here in Florida, we're trying to do similar research to try to figure out what's going to happen to alligators and sea turtles in this respect. The early results are that we exposed a bunch of nests that we constructed to warming temperatures. And we found that increasing the air temperature around a nest actually doesn't have a big impact on the internal nest temperature. So the temperature the eggs experience on the inside of the nest, it doesn't change that much as the outside temperatures increase, which is great because it means that climate change is probably not going to affect the sex ratios of alligator populations. And that's, that's good news. We like that. The worrisome part is that we also expose these nests to drought conditions. Because as I said, we know drought is becoming more frequent in certain parts of the country, including here in North Florida. 
And what we found is that if you expose these nests to drought conditions, lots of these eggs die if they are not in high humidity, high rainfall environments. So my focus now is switching away from being worried about the sex ratios of these populations to being more concerned about just the survivability of the eggs in general. How is it that external temperatures don't have much of an impact on the, the temperature of the nest? So what we think is happening is that, you know, an alligator's nest, for those of you who've never seen one, it's this very large structure made out of dirt and grass and sticks and just basically anything that a female alligator can find. She like scrapes it all up into a pile and just puts it all in one big pile and then lays her eggs inside of it. And what we've found is that the dirt and the mud and the vegetation, it actually is an insulating material. So it will keep the internal temperature more constant, and it will not let it vary with the outside temperature as it goes up and down. And if the local population suffers dramatically, I mean, what would that mean for humans here in the region? Yeah. So let's take an example. Let's say that there's a lake and it has a large population of alligators and the population gets hit by drought for you know a decade or more and the reproductive rates fall quite dramatically, and then the alligator population declines in that lake. What you're doing to that lake is you're taking out the top predator, right? Alligators are the largest predators in Florida, and so if you take that out, it's going to change the balance of power between different kinds of prey species. Alligators eat anything they can fit their mouth around. <laughs> and so what they, they help do is they help regulate competition between different prey species. And there's a lot of research, from not from alligators, but from other types of predators, that shows that if you remove the predator, it can change the sort of structure of the food web because one type of species that the alligator used to feed on will become dominant maybe and will outcompete all the other ones. So the lake as a whole might become less diverse in terms of the number of species that live there because you don't have alligators eating all these different species. Okay. And there's this piece you wrote called, Is It Possible to Make Environmental Science Relevant to Society at Large? I, I found this really interesting. What motivated you to write this? What motivated me is that there's no doubting the science of climate change anymore. We know what's going to happen on a broad scale. And so doing more climate science is not going to solve the problem. We need to convince people to take action. And that's where psychology comes in. It's where social science comes in. Can we make the science we're doing relevant to a larger proportion of the population and make them understand why it's important? So that was the motivation to write that paper. I wanted to see what can we do as biologists, as climate scientists, to try to reach more people. So you weren't against presenting scientific knowledge as absolute. Yes. But I think it frequently gets presented that way, not necessarily by scientists, but by activists in the media. Yes. Why do you think that's problematic? The reason it's problematic to present scientific evidence as absolute is that we have a long history in the scientific community of making predictions that don't come to fruition or don't completely come to fruition. So for example, this is another myth about climate change that's brought up frequently. In the 1970s, I think, or maybe it was the 60s, there was like a big story on the cover of Time magazine where these climate scientists were talking about how we were entering a cooling phase and how there was going to be a global cooling event. And obviously that didn't come to pass. And so by presenting that as absolute, it sets yourself up for failure. The public is expecting a certain thing to happen and then it doesn't happen. And then people are like, oh, well, why should we ever trust them again? So good scientists never present their work as absolute. We present it in terms of probabilities. What we need to do as a scientific community is we need to communicate the urgency and we need to communicate, you know, if you say that something is 90% likely to happen, 
it's almost certain to happen. It's not certain to happen, but it's almost certain to happen. And if you use that kind of language, I think it communicates the urgency a little bit more. So that's why when it comes to climate change, we present different scenarios that are possible. We say this one is you know 90% likely, this one is 50% likely, and then you present that to policymakers and you say, make your decisions. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has a problem with this because in their reports they put out every five or six years, mm-hmm. they use probabilistic language that's really hard to understand for most people. They say things like something is somewhat likely or very likely or almost certainly likely. Whereas if they change their word choices a little bit, it might have a bigger effect. So I think part of this problem too might be that people have a general misunderstanding of how the scientific process works. Yes. So can you kind of walk us through that? Yeah, the way the scientific process works in a very brief form is that somebody comes up with a hypothesis of how something works. They then come up with an experiment or a set of observations they do to try to test the idea that they want to test. Does it work that way or does it not work that way? Then they do the experiment or they make the observations. They get their results. They analyze their results. They write up their results for a scientific publication in a journal, and then they try to publish their results. Before they can be published, they have to be reviewed by other scientists in the field who are also experts, and it's called the peer review process. And they tell you whether your science is good or bad. I mean, I've done tons of peer review in my career. I've you know obviously published a lot of papers, and so those have been peer reviewed as well. And all the time, other scientists will say, oh, you did this wrong, you did that wrong, you know, how can you say that? You can't make that conclusion, you have to go back and do this experiment over again because you forgot this important thing, blah, blah, blah. And that's all part of the scientific process. We're trying to make each other better, we're trying to hold each other accountable. And so that's step one in making sure that science is accurate. Then the second step is once something is published, other scientists can test it and see if it is actually true for different parts of the globe or different times of year or whatever it might be, right? And if other scientists don't get confirmation, then they can dispute the original findings, right? And they can say, oh, that wasn't accurate. We don't think that's true anymore. Or here's some conflicting evidence. So as scientists, we try to take everything into account. We try to be as objective as possible. And then we check each other's work constantly. And there are lots of examples where bad science gets published for some reason, and then other scientists test it and they find that it's not true. And then that science gets retracted. And so what we like to say is that it's a self-correcting process. So when it comes to climate science, people have been doing climate science in a very sort of concentrated way since like the early 70s. I mean, there was a governmental panel that was advising President Lyndon Johnson back in the 60s when it comes to climate change. You know, it was very early stages, but scientists were doing it back then. So we've been doing this for close to 60 years now. And There are tens of thousands of studies that have gone through rigorous peer review and have been tested over and over and over again. And that's why we're so confident as to the process of climate change and what the predictions are going to be. And so if somebody was to come along with evidence that refuted all of that and did it in a conclusive way that other people could test, then that would be the biggest discovery since, I don't know, (laughs) DNA, (laughs) right? I mean, that would be earth shaking. Yeah. But that hasn't happened because every time somebody comes up with an alternate hypothesis for why the climate is changing, other people test that hypothesis and it turns out not to be true. And that's happened for decades. So another thing I hear a lot is climate change is just a theory. What is a scientific theory and how is it different from the word theory as it's used conversationally? In science, a theory means something very specific. You have a hypothesis. Hypothesis is an idea about how something in the world works but it's just an idea, right? And then you have to test that idea. A law is a mathematical description of how something works, right? So you have the law of gravity. The law of gravity says this is what gravity is and how it operates, but it doesn't say why it operates, okay? So along with the law of gravity, there's also a theory of gravity. 
So Newton came up with the law of gravity, right? And then Einstein came up with the theory of gravity to explain why gravity exists in the first place. And it has to do with the bending of space and time. So a hypothesis is just an idea that doesn't have a ton of support behind it. Whereas a theory is an idea that has been supported by lots of different forms of evidence. So like, for example, evolution by natural selection, that's also just a theory, but it's a theory that's been supported by tens of thousands of studies over 170 years worth of research since Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace came up with the idea of, of evolution by natural selection. But the theory of natural selection is never gonna be a law, never, because it's not gonna be boiled down into a mathematical equation. Tell me about the letter you and your colleagues at UNF, Jacksonville University, and Florida State College at Jacksonville wrote to Mayor Lenny Curry and the city council. Uh, yeah, my colleagues and I wrote a letter recently that was asking city council and Mayor Lenny Curry to prioritize developing a climate action plan for the city. Currently, Jacksonville is the only major city in Florida that does not have a climate action plan or a sustainability action plan or a chief resilience officer. Miami, Orlando, and Tampa are all ahead of us when it comes to this, even though we are not just as vulnerable, but we are vulnerable just like those other cities are, especially Tampa and Miami. We presented a case about why Jacksonville is vulnerable to climate change effects. And we said, you know, if you want to develop a climate action plan or hire a chief resilience officer for the city, we would be more than happy to provide you with information to help you make that decision in a responsible and effective way. And I have not heard from the mayor yet. I have heard from two city council members who are supportive of trying to develop a climate action plan and hire a chief resilience officer. I've heard from a couple other city council members who were acknowledging the issues that we face as a city, but maybe weren't as excited about getting on board with this idea. But what I'm excited about this letter is that it started the conversation moving forward in a more constructive way at the city level for trying to get something to happen here in Jacksonville to help us be more resilient to climate change and to help us mitigate the worst effects of climate change. Why do you think the city has been slow to take on climate change? I don't want to come off like I'm claiming to know everything about Jacksonville and how it operates in the politics of the city because I've only been here for like just over two years now. I'm still definitely in a learning phase. My sense about the city is that the city feels like it's less vulnerable than places like Miami, which is true. Miami is definitely more on the front lines of climate change than Jacksonville is. And so maybe the idea is like, oh, well, that's a problem for them down there in South Florida, but not for us up here in North Florida, which is just not the case. I mean, we're, we are still very vulnerable, just maybe not on the same time scale as people in Miami are. So maybe that's part of it. Um, part of it also is probably, as it is in a lot of parts of the country, wishful thinking that if we just don't talk about it, we won't have to worry about it or put any money towards it or put any effort to try to work on it. And a lot of times it's just if the voters in the city have not expressed concern about the issue, then there's no, there's no pressure on the local politicians to do anything about it. And so if there hasn't been any conversation on climate change going on in Jacksonville for 30 years, then why would any local politicians be paying attention to it as an issue? And that's why we're trying to get this conversation moving along. Again, that's Adam Rosenblatt, a biology professor at the University of North Florida. To see some of his work and to learn more about his advocacy efforts, go to adaptflorida.org. There you can get to know all six of the people profiled in this podcast. Thanks for listening to the Adapt Podcast. I'm Brendan Rivers. Production help came from Lindsay Kilbride with editing by Jessica Palumbo. The theme music was composed and performed by Davin Llewellyn and Keith Phelps from The Conglomerate. 
The ADAPT Podcast is a production of WJCT Public Media. Financial support for ADAPT comes from our readers and listeners, with additional support from the Arthur Vining Davis Foundations and the 2040 Foundation. More at adaptflorida.org. Thank you.